Well, do join me as we stand together to read our sermon passage this morning. You can turn in your Bibles to the Gospel of John, chapter 1, is where we're going to be. If you don't have a Bible with you, I do invite you to grab one of the chairback Bibles that should be nearby you, and you'll find this morning's text on page 886. Uh, my, my personal preaching convictions are that about every five years, I think it's wise for a church to be studying one of the Gospels, and so it was from November of 2017 to something like June of 2019 at Redeemer here that we studied the Gospel of Luke, and so something like five or so years after the bulk of that study, we come to another Gospel that begins this morning that I trust will take us into the late spring of next year, and I want to read the first 18 verses of John chapter 1 for us this morning, Uh, this prologue to his gospel narrative that is so well known, and then I'll pray for our time and we'll begin together. So listen now once again as the Lord does speak to you through his living word. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. And there was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light, that all might believe through him. And he was not the light, but he came to bear witness about the light, the true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him. Yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will, nor of the flesh, nor of the will of man, But of God. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about him and cried out, This is he of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me, because he was before me. For from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the only God who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of the Lord stands forever. Let's pray once again. Lord, we do ask today that you would help us to delight in your truth, that your spirit would enable us not to forget your word that he would incline our heart to your gospel, that its blessing may fall upon all those who hear it and obey it. And we do pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. I spent the majority of this past week in Jackson, Mississippi, at a pastor's conference with a few hundred church leaders from 
uh, around the world. And as these things so often go, the vast majority of the time was spent in teaching and, and singing. But there were these extended breaks that happened each and every day. And so as we uh, were walking around uh, the conference area or perhaps in the bookstore, uh, those minutes that were spent on break and in some degree of retreat were so often occupied with, with meeting people for the first time. You know, sometimes that was you just kind of walking into a bookstore and uh, you notice someone looking at a book that you think is quite good or maybe you notice someone who's uh, rather lonely or what happened to me so often throughout the week was uh, friends of mine who happened to be there would come up to me and say something like, hey, Jordan, I want you to meet someone or Jordan, I want to introduce you to my friend. And all I want to do today in this prologue to John's gospel is introduce you to someone because that's all John wants to do in this prologue to his gospel. He wants you to introduce you to someone whose name is Jesus Christ. And what you get in these 18 verses is what one scholar has called the foyer to John's gospel. And it's a, a pretty apt analogy when you think about it, because I would imagine many of our homes have something like a foyer that serves as a place of introduction before when company comes over, you move into the living areas or the dining areas. And uh, what happens here in these first 18 verses of the Gospel of John is we come to an introduction to, to many of the themes that are going to so permeate John's Gospel. And he's just going to introduce them to us, however brief the introductions are. And so the rest of the narrative and the story is going to get to uh, further reality of this living truth in the gospel of John. So kids, I wonder what you know about this man named John. Kids, I wonder if you know anything about John the Apostle. Well, of course, we can say he's one of the 12. Further, if you know your gospels well, that John was one of the three that constituted something of an inner ring in Jesus' disciples that had unique privileges in terms of seeing Christ and all of his beauty and splendor and being near Christ at all times. It was John who, along with his brother James, was famously referred to by Jesus as a son of thunder. Interestingly, in this gospel, John refers to himself, but under the Spirit's inspiration, therefore, it clearly is accurate that his nickname is also the disciple whom Jesus loved. And uh, this gospel is altogether unique compared to the other three gospels that make up the early part of the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. It's why uh, one reformer referred to John's gospel as the unique, tender, and chief gospel. And one of the unique things about John, in a way that's not true of the other three, is that, that he tells us exactly what his purpose is in writing this gospel. You could turn there if you wanted to in chapter 20, verse 31, or you could just write it down. He says at the end of that chapter, which is near the end of the book, he says, these things are written. So everything we're getting ready to study. These things are written that you may know that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing in him, you might find life in his name. So every single story, every single section, Every single topic, every single testimony and teaching in John all has a singular purpose and a similar response to which it calls you, which is that you would believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, not long ago, I was talking with one of the members of our church that uh, told me he, he was reading this old book by an old pastor named John Owen, and the book was one of the last ones that Owen wrote in his life, if not actually the last one that Owen wrote just before he died, and it was a book that's titled The Glory of Christ. 
And somewhere in that book, uh, John Owen says, make up your mind in this way, that to behold the glory of God by beholding the glory of Christ is the greatest privilege that believers can enjoy in this life. This, beholding God's glory by beholding the glory of Christ, this is the dawning of heaven upon earth. And I hope you'll see something about why someone might say that, about when you see the glory of Christ, you're beholding, of course, the glory of God himself. And so our theme this morning is simply an introduction to Jesus. And there are five simple things I want to introduce you to about Jesus according to John's introduction. I want to show you that he's eternal, that he's personal, that he's graceful, truthful, and he's visible. He's the eternal God. Notice how John begins verse 1 and 2. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. In the original language, the title here, Word, just is Logos. And students, have you ever asked a question if you've studied John's Gospel, why is it here at the outset in this most majestic part of, of Scripture that John is so intent on saying that Jesus is the Word? Uh, we know the word is Jesus because if you glance down at verse 14, it clearly says the word became flesh and dwelt among us. So, so what is so important about Jesus being the word? Now, you have to know something about those people that would have made up John's original audience, his original hearers, if you're to understand why it's so important for him to say the word is Jesus. So you have to know something about how Greek people thought about the word and also how Jewish people thought about the word. Because for Greeks at the time when John was writing, the Logos, the word, it was this uh, topic of philosophical fascination. For centuries prior to Jesus' coming, the Greek philosophers would wonder aloud and talk to each other and even speak in public society about these things of, of order and, and simplicity in the world, what, what keeps things all right where they should be. And the ordinary Greek Answer, according to their philosophy, was the word, was the logos. So, for example, Plato says this, It may be someday that there will come forth from God a word, a logos, who will reveal all mysteries and make everything plain. And so deftly and brilliantly, right from the outset, what is John doing but saying, Hey, all you Greek philosophers... I know who you've been talking about for the last few centuries. And I'm going to tell you his story. I'm going to reveal to you his name. But for the Jewish audience, the word wasn't philosophical fascination as much as it was theological fascination. In the beginning was the word. Now, now kids, students, think about another verse in the Bible, very famous, very important, that begins with the same words. In the beginning. The first verse in the first chapter of the first book. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And so what John is doing for his Jewish audience that, that so understood their Old Testament so well that they knew that the word in, in the Old Testament was all about God's action in creation. It was all about God's revelation. It was all about God's mercy in salvation. And, and that word has come. And he's bringing new creation. 
And that, that new creation is exactly where John goes to next. Notice verse 3. He says that in the word, in Christ Jesus, all things were made through him. And without him was not anything made that was made. So yes, Jesus is co-eternal with God. He's co-equal with God. Jesus is without beginning. Jesus is without end. Jesus today is the exact same as he will be tomorrow. And Jesus today is the exact same as he was yesterday. It's through the word that all things came into being. Now, I remember years ago when our kids were younger and we would sometimes pass hours in the afternoon after I came home from the office building these, you know, very tall block towers. And the goal with the children was to see, of course, how, how tall the tower could become. But, but in actuality, our, our goal was to get it to the top of the ceiling, you know, to, to span the, the, the whole room. And as you might have even tried such an endeavor before, more often than not, the, the tower would topple over before it, it reached the top. And if the kid was especially young, maybe doing this for the first time, there was a sense of sadness that would come over the face as the tower would just topple over into destruction. And, you know, you would say something to the, the little boy or the little girl, say, don't worry, you know, we, we built it up once, we can build it up again. Uh, why is John, right from the outset, so emphasizing the, the, this creation-like power that belongs to Jesus. Well, it's because by his word, he created all things and has not sin wreaked its destructive power on all things. And the God who created all things, he's powerful enough to recreate all things. And remember, how was it that God created all things, students? By the word of his power. And John is saying, here comes Jesus, God's word. The, the eternal son of God is coming. And in him, we're going to find new creation for sinners like you and me. So he is the eternal God. And notice, secondly, he is the personal God. Verse 4 says this, in him was life. And that life was the light of men. If you stretch it into verse 5, the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. So the light of the world has power not just in creation. The light of the world is God's life that even death and darkness can't overcome. Uh, you may not know your Bible super well, but surely you know something about the truth of Scripture well enough to know that sin indeed has come into the world. That, that death now has left its mark on creation. And I, I would imagine that you understand how you, you could visit people this week. You could look around our ordinary neighborhoods and, and contexts this week. And what you would see so often are pursuits and endeavors, ambitions writ large that are nothing more than people's pursuit of life in the midst of a world of death and destruction. So think about all the ordinary ways that people in our context try to find life. You know, they think that money is going to bring life. Uh, they think that a certain possession will bring life, maybe a house, maybe a car. Uh, they think that a certain relationship will bring life, maybe a spouse, maybe children, maybe grandchildren. They think a certain job will bring life. Isn't it true for so many in our context? They think sports will bring life whether you watch them or, or, or play them. Uh, those things, of course, are, are parts of life, but they're not providers of life, are they? 
Because you see, verse 4 tells us who the provider is. In him, that being Jesus, in him was life. And then if you glance through verse 5 through 8, it speaks about this reality of John the Baptist coming, this prophet-like preacher to whom we'll turn to, Lord willing, next week, and what his role was. And you see even verse 7, he came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. So there's John's first nod to the supreme purpose of his gospel. The whole point is that you would hear who Jesus is, that you would believe in him. Now you and I know that we could walk around our neighborhood later on this week and find no small number of people who don't believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. And we ought not to be surprised by that. Because it was true even for those people who saw Jesus Christ that they didn't believe in him. You notice what John goes on to say. Look at verse 10 and 11. He was in the world and the world was made through him. Yet the world did not know him. He came to his own and his own people did not receive him. It's one thing, isn't it, to say, well, he created all things. He created all people and not all people know him. It's another thing John is saying that it's not just that, yes, he created all people and not all people know him, but he specifically chose a certain people. In his mercy and sovereign grace, the nation of Israel, and they didn't recognize him, which is a constant undercurrent of the Gospels, isn't it? People who should have known didn't know. People who should have listened didn't listen. People who should have loved, they hated. Maybe you're even in here this morning and in a church like this, a congregation of Jesus Christ. And have you passed by in that way? You should know, but you're not knowing. You should be listening, but you're not listening. And if you left the prologue here, it would be a rather bleak introduction, wouldn't it? The great eternal God, Son of God, Jesus Christ, has come into the world and nobody listened to him. And nobody knew him. But that's not where John leaves us, does he? Because he's a good preacher, and good preachers, they've got to have hope, don't they? So look what he says in verse 12 and 13. He says, but, and just stop right there. Uh, I've told you this before, if you've been with us long enough here at Redeemer, that sometimes the gospel is found in conjunctions. Yet, however, nevertheless, although people weren't listening, but bad news to good news. And what's the good news? Continue on. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. So I have five sisters and no brothers. And if I told you the names of all of my sisters, uh, you might realize that there's one name that stands out as somewhat different than the other four. So if you go in order of their ages, there's Mariah, my older sister. There's my twin sister, Marin. Then the younger sisters, Hannah, Tori, and Oksana. And if you have ears to hear, you would notice well, Oksana doesn't sound like an American name. It's because she's not. Fifteen years ago, my parents adopted Oksana from Russia. And when Oksana came over, of course, everything in her life immediately changed when she was adopted into our family. She had 
new rights and responsibilities. She had new authorities and new privileges. She, of course, even had a new language, new food, new culture, new everything, because everything changed as she moved into a new family. And do you see what John is preaching in the gospel there of verse 12 and 13 is the gospel of adoption, that people who are dark and stained by sin through belief in Jesus Christ, they are born into God's family, that they become children of God. That's why one old theologian once asked the question of what is a Christian? And he went on to say, of course, you can answer that question in all manner of ways, but he said, the richest possible answer I could give to you about what a Christian is, is someone who has God as father. Sinners made children. Traitors given a place at the table. And do you see even how the text tells us that this is not something you can do on your own? He's alluding to something Jesus is soon going to say in John chapter 3, that you must be born again. And no one can make themselves born again. Of course, children, you can't take any credit for you even being born. But if you look again, verse 13, uh, we're not born of man's will, but of God's will. So that relationship with the personal God is all of sovereign grace, which leads us to the third truth about Jesus. He is the graceful God, look at verse 14. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. We've seen his glory. Glory is of the only son from the father, full of grace. It's not exactly clear in the uh, original, I'm sorry, the English language, but in the original language, what, what John has just articulated there in verse 14, at least for an ordinary Jewish person in the first century, would have landed upon their soul like a bombshell. Uh, because if you more literally translated the verse, it says, the word became flesh and pitched his tent among us. The word became flesh and tabernacled among us. Now, why would that have been so bombshell-like spiritually in their heart? Because consider, students, what, what the tabernacle meant to God's people in the Old Testament. Now, if you know that story about the tabernacle's creation, it was, of course, after God had redeemed his people out of Egypt from bondage and slavery. He's taking them to the promised land. They're there at Mount Sinai. And you remember Moses come down with instructions. And part of the instructions, the law that God has given to Moses at the top of Mount Sinai, that he relays to the people at the bottom, is that they need to build a tabernacle. Why? Because it's there that God's going to dwell with them. It's there at the end of the book of Exodus that God's Shekinah glory, this kind of outward radiance of his inward perfections, it falls upon the tabernacle. And so in the subsequent story of Israel, when you wanted to talk with God, when Moses wanted to hear from God, when Moses wanted to encounter God, when Moses wanted to experience God, where did you have to go? To the tabernacle. And, and now he's saying, do, do you want to see God? Do you want to know him? Do you want to hear from him? Do you want to speak to him? Do you want to encounter him? Do you want to experience him? Well, just go to Jesus. Because he is God's presence among us, full of grace. I wonder if you, even this week, thought about the fullness of grace that is offered to you in Jesus Christ. 
Uh, I think for many people in a place like our own, uh, you gather with people who are often enslaved to certain sins. Uh, so maybe you sit in here this morning and, and you for many months, perhaps many years even, have been enslaved to a secret sin. Maybe you, you fell into that sin this week. And maybe as a result, you felt this immense, overwhelming guilt and shame rise up in your soul. And maybe you thought about going to Jesus with that sin. But maybe you thought if you went to Jesus that his countenance towards you would be tough and angry. Do you know that the Lord's countenance towards his people is full of grace? That's why even if you glance down what he says in verse 16, for from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. If you go to Jesus Christ as one of his own, who do you go to? But that very glorious God of whom Moses only saw but the back parts. A God who is loving, merciful, and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love. Even in context there, verse 16, this idea of grace upon grace, it's really saying, well, grace did come through Moses. Grace did come through the law. And even greater grace comes through Jesus. Your kids, you might think about it in this way. If you've ever gone on a hiking trail or something, and at the end there was this destination-like point of a, a, a beautiful waterfall. You know, just the water flows, doesn't it? Constantly over that cliff. Oh, what is that glorious reality that belongs to the Christian life of coming in that journey of life to the Lord Jesus through faith and finding him just like a waterfall constantly pouring grace out upon his people. People who, who need, don't you, constant supplies of grace in your life. He's a graceful God. Fourthly, he's the truthful God. You see, John bears witness to the truth, verse 15, he's going to later say, this is he of whom I said, he who comes after me ranks before me because he was before me. If you finish out verse 14, he's full not only of grace, but he's also full of truth, which is why notice verse 17, the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. In ways that are somewhat subtle and it's easy for an ordinary reader to miss, John is a brilliant preacher because he is writing in, in part to a, to a Jewish audience. And Jews, they esteemed and valued, they cherished Moses. And what he's saying here is, yes, grace and truth, it came through Moses. Amen. But even more grace, even greater truth is now revealed in Jesus Christ. There were some kids in my life that years ago went to a Bible study with their mother at this local church. And uh, when they went to that Bible study, they would sit down on the floor early on. These children would kind of in their Bible study classrooms, they would sit on the floor, they would cross their legs, and they would begin to drum on each one of their knees. And they began to sing a song. Absolutely true. Absolutely true. Everything the Bible says is absolutely true. And that, friends, is absolutely true. And what's also absolutely true, isn't it? Everything that Jesus says is absolutely true. Everything who Jesus is, is absolutely true. And so when he speaks to you, it's words of truth. 
This God who is eternal, personal, graceful, truthful. Notice, fifthly, He is the visible God, verse 18. No one has ever seen God, the only God, who is at the Father's side. He has made Him known. There was this song we used to sing in the youth group of the church in which I grew up. Some of you might know it. It was a song called In the Secret and had this chorus that I sang out. I want to know you. I want to see your face. And if you know your Old Testament well, you know that no Old Testament saint would ever sing that song. They were terrified of seeing God. Remember Moses says, Lord, I want to see your glory. And God says, you can't see it and live. It's not possible. So what God does is he hides him in the cleft of the rock and makes his glory pass by and Moses just gets the barest glimpse of it. Therefore, all throughout the Old Testament, saints were terrified of seeing God. And what John has just majestically told us is you no longer need to be terrified about seeing God because Jesus is God made visible. Why the apostles would revel in the truth that he is the image of the invisible God. He is the only God, the only Son of God. Even the language there in verse 18, who is at the the Father's side, is more like in the Father's bosom, literally. He is God. Do, Do you want to see God? That's why that song actually is one you can sing. Will you see him by seeing Jesus? Later on in this book, he's going to say, anyone who sees me sees what? The Father. Do you want to see God? I hope you do. Now, kids, you might think, well, yes, yes, Jordan, I'd love to see God, but I can't see God. Well, of course you can't see him with his eyes right now. He's sitting at the Father's right hand in heaven, ruling and reigning. But in a way that's altogether mysterious and supernatural in its power. Now, the Apostle Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 4 that it's through the preaching of the gospel that we see. It's exactly what he says. It's through the preaching of the gospel that we see the light of the glory of God in the face of of Jesus Christ. Uh, Do you want to see God? Keep reading this gospel. Keep listening to this gospel. He who is the visible God is there portrayed for you. So this is your introduction to who Jesus is. Now, it was something like 10 years ago that I came across a, an old preacher. Never heard about from anyone, never heard about him anywhere. And his name was Isaac Ambrose. And a colleague of mine had told me something like a decade ago that I needed to study this particular book that Ambrose had written. And he told me I should, I should write some thesis on it when I was in the midst of searching for a master's thesis. And so I began to read about Ambrose, and I read that book, and... Uh, I discovered that he was well known in his area of Lancashire in England for disappearing every May. I mean, imagine that if a few weeks pass by and then you come in here on a Sunday and you discover your pastors have disappeared for the entire month. But everyone knew what he was doing in May. He would disappear to the local woods where he had erected this tiny little shed. And all he would do for four weeks in a row is he would read his Bible, he would pray, And he would meditate on the glory of God revealed in the face of Jesus Christ, which is why those meditations eventually made it into his magnum opus that was simply titled, Looking Unto Jesus. 
Now, I suppose there might be a few of you in the room today that could realistically disappear for a month of prayer and meditation and scripture reading. But most of us can't disappear for four weeks in a row. But let me tell you something that's, I hope, encouraging. You can come here every Sunday for the next year or so. And what you'll find is a retreat into what it means to behold the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Surely we, we, we've missed the point if the Lord tarries and the Lord allows, if we have studied this book for over a year and we aren't more like Jesus by the end of it. So let me tell you as we begin to close the two ordinary responses that come from this prologue, this introduction to John's gospel. He is the word of God made audible. He is the light of God made visible, which means there are two simple responses. Number one, listen to him. Listen to him. Kids, what do you do with words? Of course, you read them, but as they're spoken, what do you do? At least you should do. Listen to them. Kids, have you ever kind of been in a place in your house, maybe you're being a little bit chaotic in a room, and your mom or dad show up and say, listen up. That's what God does through his word in John's gospel, doesn't he? To a world wrecked by the chaos of sin, he speaks a word of Christ and says, listen. So pay attention to the ways in which, in the subsequent chapters, people do or don't listen to Jesus. For example, in John chapter 9, a man born blind is healed. He's trying to tell the Jewish leaders about this man that healed him. And after a second attempt, he says, well, why should I try again? You're not listening. Then in the very next chapter, what does Jesus say? Chapter 10, John's gospel. I am the good shepherd. My sheep listen to my voice. I wonder if you're listening to Christ today. He's the word made audible, but he's also the light of God made visible. So therefore, we don't just listen to him. We do look to him. Uh, we look to him. Just as the light pierces the darkness, so we must lift up our eyes and understand how the light of Jesus Christ pierces our hearts. Out of that darkness of sin to which it's so easily entangled and ensnared that we might see the light of Christ and his beauty and brilliance flooding into our souls. You might be in here today, therefore, and haven't truly come to the Lord Jesus Christ in faith. The Bible says that you're blinded in your sin. You live in a world against a, a prince, the power of the air, the, the spirit at work now in the sons of disobedience whose name is Satan that is intent on keeping people like you blinded from the light of Jesus Christ. But in the very same chapter where John speaks about, I'm sorry, Paul speaks about the preaching of the gospel as showing light. He says, this is how, this is how people blinded in sin start to see. They hear the good news of Christ Jesus. So are you listening? Are you looking are your ears and your eyes open to a God who is eternal and personal, who is graceful and truthful, who is the Lord made visible? Have you been introduced to him yet? Many of you have. So therefore, maybe this week, you'll introduce someone else to this very God. Let's pray together.
God, we ask that you would open our souls to hear, that you would open our hearts to heed your truth, that we might know something of what it means to see the King in his beauty this day. And we pray it all in his beloved, precious name. Amen.